0: This is episode number 273, How Getting Plant Curious Changes Lives with Planted Life's Steven Merkovich. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spend in the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day.
1: That being said, It is tricky because the nuance there is what you raised in that a lot of our responses to our emotional upheaval or our emotional dysregulation is a desire for control. And that desire for control can express itself in a variety of settings in a variety of ways. For me, it happened to express itself through controlling what I eat, and I think probably for a lot of people that is the truth. And so it's reframing your perception of control and not abnegating your agency in what you choose to eat, but also having a healthier relationship with the choices you make around food when you're aware of your emotional state.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us today, and it's hard to believe that it is November. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about expectations, and as athletes, weather is something that can really affect us, whether it be on race day or just getting out and doing the training and doing the work. Sometimes the weather can really affect our mood. It can really affect our motivation. And there's some tools that you can use in order to get yourself excited about going out when maybe the conditions aren't quite as favorable as you would like them to be. A big component of mental toughness and resilience is the story that you tell yourself. So you can look outside, and this is an example that I give in the Moxie Ingrit Mindset Academy, which is a mental skills course for athletes that's linked up in the show notes. Um, But you can look outside and you can see that it's raining and you can say to yourself, today is going to be awful, I'm going to get cold, why is it always rainy, gosh, it's really gross out. You can tell yourself a number of stories about what it's like outside. Or you can pause and maybe you can tell yourself a different story. And the way that we view the world and the lens that we look through colors the way that we experience the world. So if you already decide that it's going to be bad or not very fun, then the entire time that you're out there, you're going to be looking for ways to confirm that belief. But if you can say, hey, this is going to be a really fun adventure, or I'm going to be that much tougher when I get back from this, and the next time I go out, it'll be even easier, or it's not going to be as bad as I think it's going to be, like whatever you need to tell yourself, and then you start looking for ways to confirm that, it makes a really big difference overall with how you approach a difficult situation or even just a bad weather day next time. It's about challenging that belief about the weather or whatever the thing is that you're worried about. And asking if it's true and asking if there's a different way or another way that would also be true to tell yourself a story around what's happening. The reason why I'm talking about this is because I moved to Squamish, B.C., which is in a rainforest. And rain was one of my concerns because I grew up in the desert in Albuquerque that has around 330 days of sunshine a year. And then I moved to Colorado, which felt cloudy to me. And then I moved to Kelowna, B.C., which is a lot cloudier but doesn't get the same amount of moisture as living on the coast. So it's been raining here almost every single day for weeks and weeks. And I just stopped expecting it to be nice weather when I opened up the window and looked outside every single morning. I would expect it to be raining. I would expect to see just darkness and rain falling from the sky. And when I had that expectation, I actually found that I wasn't as disappointed about the weather. I just was accepting of the weather. And going out and training in the rain just became something that I did, and it's something that I do regularly now. And I don't even have to go through that mental game of trying to reframe my expectations or my attitude about the weather because it's something that is just regularly happening to me. Or I'll rephrase that, just regularly happening, period. It's my judgment and my thought around what is actually happening, the reality of the weather that can cause me to have fun or it can cause suffering. So I just wanted to bring that up because I actually wrote about that in my newsletter uh, that went out on Monday, just in the intro. And you can get my newsletter at sanyaluni.com slash newsletter, which is something I send out every single Monday. But it was just an interesting realization how whenever something that used to be kind of hard or something that you had to work at becomes the regular and becomes the norm, then you change your expectations and it almost makes it easier to manage those things. So my challenge for you this week is to look for something that seems like it's really hard that you always have to work yourself up for and try to change your expectations around that thing. Try to tell yourself a different story around that thing. That way, maybe it won't feel so hard next time. And if you want more mental skills like that, make sure you check out the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. You get a workbook included with the course. You can get that at sonyalooney.com or at moxieandgrit.com. And there have been lots of athletes from all different types of sports who have taken this course and seen really positive benefits, not only in their sporting life, but in their daily life as well. And that's Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. So let's get into today's amazing guest. His name is Steven Markovich, and I recently met him because he is the founder of the Planted Expo, which is an event that I'm speaking at in Vancouver next week. So if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, which is November 11th, I'll be speaking on November 20th in Vancouver. So if you feel like traveling or you're in the area, you should come check out this expo. It's two days. It has some very incredible speakers coming um, about all different types of topics. And my topic is going to be about how embracing curiosity, asking questions, and taking action on those questions can change your life. And I I will go into my speech talking about how it's helped me become a world champion, but also how it's helped me find a plant-based diet and thrive eating a plant-based diet. I changed my diet almost a decade ago, and my passion and interest in this has enabled me to talk to some of the world's leaders in the plant-based space including researchers, dietitians, doctors, and regular people who are doing amazing things in their lives. You can go to plantedlife.com to pick up some tickets to this event. There's also a VIP event with Rich Roll. If you guys have heard of Rich Roll, he is an amazing podcast host. Uh, his podcast is probably what inspired me to start my own podcast almost five years ago. So go to plantedlife.com, get some tickets, maybe pick up some tickets for the VIP event with Rich Roll, and we'll see you next weekend. And if you're not in the Vancouver area, or this just isn't sounding like something that is going to fit into your schedule, they have other events. They'll be having events on the other side of the country in Ontario. So just check out their website and you'll find some great information there. The Planted Expo is the largest plant-based event in Canada, so there'll be some really great exhibitors there, some really great people, and I'll also be doing a second speech at 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon. The presenting sponsor of the Planted Expo is Boosh. And if you haven't heard of Boosh, you're missing out because they make these really delicious plant-based meals, comfort food-based meals that have really high quality ingredients that you can get in the frozen section and you can heat them up if you don't have time to cook or if you just really need a quick fix. And I know that this is common because I am the mom of a toddler and I also run a business and I'm also a professional athlete. So sometimes I just need something and I don't wanna go out to eat and if i can just pop something in from the freezer really quick to satiate me keep me going for the rest of the day boosh is a great option so i'll be speaking at their exhibitor area at 2 30 as well so make sure you come out because you'll get to see me not once but twice on saturday and you might even be sick of me and the speeches are two different topics altogether. Ooh, that's a lot of announcements today but let's get into today's guest steven Murkovic. he is the owner of planted expo which i just talked about He is a recovering food addict who experienced overeating, junk food, veganism, and eventually found his way to a plant-based style of living. His newfound growth and change in lifestyle has helped him affect hundreds of people, and he guides them in plant-based nutrition, in cooking. In fact, he has some cooking courses that you can take through sharing educational resources to help people transition to a better way of eating. We had a fantastic conversation spanning topics, lots of different topics like leadership, cooking, plant-based diets, human connection, and so much more. He gives some really great tips about getting comfortable in the kitchen with plant-based recipes. And I know that that's a huge barrier for a lot of people. Like maybe you didn't cook before and suddenly you are expected to try to cook these different meals to change your lifestyle. So he has some really great advice there. We also talked about the emotions around food, searching for control and food is a social issue. Food is such a hot topic, Uh, it can be a hot button for a lot of people, and just talking about certain issues around it can really help build your own thoughts and self-awareness and give you some insight to think about it a little bit more for yourself. A big concern a lot of people have, especially athletes, is if they change to a plant-based diet that they might not be able to perform as well or that they're going to become deficient in some way. And that was a concern that I had back in, geez, 2013 when I changed my diet. If you're looking for a little bit of reassurance, you should check out Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker has blood and DNA testing for athletes to help you optimize over 40 biomarkers that they test for. They have a science-backed algorithm that helps you achieve your goals. So if your goal is better endurance, if your goal is better heart health, whatever your goal may be, it actually changes the reference ranges based on what those goals are for each biomarker. And they recommend lifestyle things that you can do, whether you're plant-based or not, to improve upon these biomarkers. So if you're looking at your cortisol, maybe you are feeling a bit tired and overstressed. If you're looking at inflammation and the overall level of inflammation in your blood, and I have to say that eating a plant-based diet is amazing for reducing inflammation. If you're looking at your magnesium, your vitamin D, your ferritin, your cholesterol... Oh my gosh, they have so many different things that you can look at and responsibility of our health kind of falls upon us. And there's a lot that we can do. We aren't victims of our genetics and lifestyles, what helps us thrive as athletes and even to have a longer health span as we age. Whether or not you're plant-based and you just want reassurance of what you're doing or you just want to optimize what you're doing, go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all of their tests. This is a great gift that you can get for yourself over the holidays. I've been doing their blood tests since 2017. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off and to start optimizing your health and take control of your performance. All right, so let's dive in with Steven.
1: Steven, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on Sonia. It's so cool to be talking to somebody just up the road. I know. Which is amazing. Every chance we get, we go up there as a family. It's like one of our hangouts um, and we're so lucky to live in Vancouver to have it just, you know, 45 minutes down the road.
0: I know I can't wait for you guys to come up here and have like a delicious cook off for, for food.
1: Uh, yeah. Tell me more about that. I in. Mean,
0: well, uh, we uh, recently bought a house up here in the last few months mm-hmm. and we have a massive kitchen, which we didn't have before. So we're always very excited to share the kitchen and cook with people. So
1: yeah. I have this uh, a small little sliver of my past where I actually got invited in as an amateur private chef to a handful of homes over the course of about six months when I was exploring maybe transitioning entirely my whole career to the culinary world. Because I'm in love with food. I'm in love with cooking. Uh, my mother instilled that in me. She like always had me in the kitchen helping bake, helping cook. And I learned to taste along the way. Like I I just thought every cook did that. As you were kind of creating things, you just taste, taste, taste. And as long as it's tasting good at every stage, generally your final product is going to taste pretty good too. And so, you know, when I went plant-based and had all sorts of questions about my vegan diet uh, and realized that, you know, a lot of people just had no clue and neither did I. And I was kind of learning on the go. Anyways. I actually got invited in and cooked for families as they watched me cook, which is like super nerve wracking because I have like no culinary skills. Like my knife skills are all like (laughs) home taught, self-developed things, but uh, that'd be really fun. We would take you up on that and come and cook in your kitchen. That'd be great.
0: Yeah. And really interesting thing, as you pointed out, especially for people who want to eat more plant-based is that it can be really intimidating, the cooking part. And that's been a huge barrier, like with some of my health coaching clients and even some family that's wanted to change their diet is they're like, well, I don't really know how to cook. And it sounds like your mom did a really good job involving you in the kitchen so that you had the confidence to dive right in. But what advice do you have for people who might not have that confidence to dive right in in the kitchen or might not even know what an ingredient is on the
1: list? Just find one food that you love and that you know well. So you know the flavors, either you eat it at a restaurant all the time, like maybe you've got a favorite Mexican place, or dare I say, even something like a Thai dish or an Indian dish, which might be like sort of more difficult and challenging given the spices, et etc. But just find whatever you're in love with, a dish that feels comfortable to you. You've eaten it at a lot of different people's houses. You've probably tried it in a lot of different ways over the course of years because you know not everybody makes whatever that dish happens to be in the same way. And then do a little sleuthing on the internet. Just kind of Google plant-based version of it, and look at three recipes, and kind of see what are the similarities and what are the differences. And then just pick one and roll with it and try it. And as long as it's a, a dish that you're familiar with, as you're cooking it, as you're kind of pulling it together, you're you're sort of. You'll know what to expect a little bit. And so a lot of cooking is, is, is expectations. Do I even know what this is supposed to taste like? Do I know what it's supposed to look like? Do I know what the texture is supposed to be? And if you have some of that familiarity and that first cooking experience goes reasonably well, mm-hmm. you'll build just a little bit of confidence. You'll have one little thing kind of notched on your belt and you'll be like, huh, I wonder if I could do that again. So I would encourage something like even simple, like waffles. You know, a lot of people think you've got to do something different or eggs or this or that. Like, nah, you can make crazy good plant-based waffles, you know, with just about any grain that you have and have it taste delicious. And your whole family will love it because it's like a feel-good, you know, just it's a dish that everybody likes. Like, who doesn't like waffles, <laughs> you know? And and if it and if it goes well and everybody sort of around you likes it, then you'll be more apt to try it again. So. Those are some of my kind of takeaways that that people can do to sort of just step into plant-based living. The other thing I would say, if you'll you'll let me, is focus on sauces. Sauces tend to be plant-based and the things that aren't plant-based in sauces can be quite easily uh, replaced with plant-based versions of those things. And most cooking is flavored through the use of sauces. So you go from cuisine to cuisine all around the world, and they've got their signature flavors that are generally um, held within the sauces of that culture. And so if you can nail your sauces and figure out how to make good sauces, then whatever sort of the foundation is, whatever grain you choose, whatever vegetable you choose, whatever bean you choose or legume you choose, you just cover that stuff in that sauce and it's bound to taste really good. Even if you didn't like nail the execution of the vegetable, like it's a little bit soggier than you wanted, or not quite cooked as much, or, you know, like the rice isn't perfect. If the sauce is on point, then everybody's still going to eat the meal and enjoy it. So those are the two things that I would uh, really encourage people to focus on.
0: Yeah. I've actually never heard it broken down to the sauces part and all my favorite recipes have really great sauces and I'll just throw one out there for people there's a cookbook called uh, vegan Italian kitchen by chef Chloe. And these sauces are incredible. And before I mm. changed my diet, I actually really didn't like cream sauces. I just, I was a weird omnivore. There's lots of things I didn't like, and I would never eat anything with a cream sauce because it's just like too rich and too creamy tasting. But some of the plant-based cream sauces, I just think are absolutely incredible.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, I've always liked cream sauces, even it was a long time ago that I transitioned to plant-based living. I I went vegetarian in 2001 and vegan in 2003, so long before it was popular or (laughs) hip or easy. And so, you know, for years, a lot of our cream sauces kind of revolved around using some form of tofu in it. Um, But then sort of the explosion of using various nuts and cashews and coconut when that kind of came into my radar, like I'd always known coconut was around, but like, you could just use so many different things to create that kind of creamy consistency, depending on whether you're going for more Asian flavors or sort of more Western flavors, you know, it would depend sort of what your plant-based medium will be. But yeah, sauces um, are key. And I would encourage people not to like try to do uh, too much with it. Uh, Oftentimes sauces are best when, uh, when they're pretty simple, right? and not having to mess with it too much to begin with. And then as you gain some experience, you can say, oh, I like that a little spicier, or I like that a little sweeter, or I like that a little more acidic. And you can kind of roll with it, like a good green goddess dressing. If you've got a good green goddess dressing, you can ramp up just about any macro bowl to a place where you will love to eat it. So like that would be one that I would encourage people to kind of look up and kind of figure out, because it incorporates all these greens, all these like herbaceous flavors, you know, And if you're not a cilantro person, by the way, because there's there's people that aren't cilantro people, you know, you can do a green goddess dressing sans cilantro, you know, just a little bit more parsley, a little bit more basil. You can go down a few other little roads to to make a really great green goddess dressing.
0: I'm just going to poke fun for a second. I'm probably going to be the only one entertained by this, but I uh, am a dual citizen and my husband and I have differences of certain words that we say because I grew up in the States. So he says cilantro, and I noticed that you Uh said cilantro. So... Yeah. Are you a, so you're a cilantro guy, not a
1: cilantro guy. Yeah. I tend to say cilantro, um, but I really don't know why. And I've never had that pointed out to me, but that's kind of a neat quirk. Cilantro, cilantro. Yeah. I for sure say cilantro.
0: Do you have a green goddess recipe you could share with us that we could put in the show
1: notes? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll send that along.
0: Awesome. One thing that you said earlier that I really liked was, In order to build confidence in the kitchen is to try to make your first or second recipe something that's going to come out reasonably well. So to pick something you're familiar with, pick something that you know what you're trying to create, and then also pick something that's kind of simple and how confidence is built on small wins along the way. And that's how you can feel more confident to try something else. But a lot of times people will make something and it won't turn out well, and they'll think that they are a bad chef or a bad cook or they just don't have any cooking skills and really there's a lot of recipes out there that just might not be great. And it's actually not you who's a bad cook. It just may be the recipe. So there's some trial and error involved too.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, one of the reasons I encourage people to try a recipe from a dish that they'd be familiar with is likely several of the components that they're kind of working with are things that they've done. Like, you know, if you're cooking pasta or you're, like, for example, making a lasagna, I think that that's. A pretty fun way, like you can get a little adventurous with it, but like if you cook a really good regular lasagna, then there's a good chance that your vegan plant-based lasagna is gonna be good too, because so much of it comes down to just like, well, what are your favorite tomato sauces? Do you know how to handle the noodles well? You know, do you know how to layer it? And then, oh, okay, well, in place of cheese, I'm gonna create some other kind of a, you know, topper or sauce that goes in between. And you're likely to have a really tasty lasagna and sort of know whether or not it's meeting your expectations and you're not having to deal with too many things that you're unfamiliar with
0: so you mentioned i think you said you went vegetarian in 2001 and then you went plant-based in 2003 there wasn't a ton of information about that back then (laughs) way back then how did you find your way to that
1: Well, I have a bit of a secret up my sleeve. I grew up as part of one of the Blue Zones. So you familiar with those, like the work of Dan Buettner? Mm -hmm. And uh, in Southern California is sort of the part of the Blue Zone that was studied. And it's kind of the home to a lot of Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And uh, from the age of 10 onwards, my mom raised me a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. In fact, I worked for the organization as a pastor for a lot of years And they have plant-based living sort of baked into their identity for a variety of reasons, health being sort of the primary one, like some Adventists run hospitals all around the world, and they're kind of crazy into health research and looking after their bodies. And and so I knew that even though from 10 to 19, I wasn't a vegetarian because most ethnic people that belong to that denomination aren't vegetarian. It was kind of more a North American phenomenon, like people that would have identified as either American or Canadian that would have participated in that. So anyways, I, I say all of that to say that I kind of grew up around more than the average number of vegetarians and vegans as a result of my participation in that church setting. And so as an adult, when I chose to go vegetarian, it was of no surprise to anybody like, oh, yeah, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, I did it not for religious reasons. I did it primarily for my health. I had gained about 65, 70 pounds at the end of high school due to kind of a severe knee injury. I blew out my ACL and MCL and meniscus in my right knee skateboarding. And I'd known that people were able to kind of regain their health and regain their, their um, well-being through a transition to plant-based living. Um, but it took me about a decade. To figure it all out, actually, because I ended up having uh, a lot more sort of emotional and food food addiction and overeating issues because you can overeat as a vegan and there's tons of vegan junk food. So it took me a little while to kind of figure out what it meant to be whole food plant-based. Um, and the first book that I read on the topic was actually by a doctor named Joel Furman, which a lot of people in the plant-based community are familiar with. And he wrote a book in 2003 that made me switch fully to whole food plant-based living called Eat to Live. And it had this really basic thing that just stuck with me that health equals, you know, nutrients divided by calories. Like, What is the caloric density of your food? And it was just like this eureka, all the lights went on. Like I just understood it automatically. Like Nobody had to convince me that there were micronutrients. Nobody had to convince me that, you know, kind of, quote unquote, your bang for your caloric buck was going to be a key component to your ability to sort of maintain your weight. And so that light switch kind of went on for me in 2003. And that's when I was like, okay, at least in my dietary patterns, I'm going to be plant-based. It took a little while for sort of the ethical components and the sustainability and environmental component and all of that to sort of round out over the course of a decade. But that book just opened my eyes to so many questions I had about human well-being and uh, sort of it really began the process of me reconnecting with my body because and and it took a long time Uh, frankly i'm still in the process of figuring out exactly my relationship to my body but i had a lot of shame and guilt as a result of gaining all of that weight and i was this super active athletic kid in high school right up until the injury you know like i played every sport and i snowboarded a bunch and skateboarded a bunch and basketball and volleyball, like you name it. I played it. I was just one of those kids. Like if there's a sport involved and there's like outdoor living involved, like I'm going to do it. But I kept eating this rich diet, put on all this weight. Um, and just, you know, nobody had the courage to have a conversation with me. Everybody just sort of watched it happen. And, you know, like it was a bit of a train wreck there for a bit because there was so much going on in my life. At any rate, I just kept learning. I kept reading. I kept experimenting Made the transition in 2003 and then yo-yoed for the better part of eight years because I had a bunch of other things that I needed to work through that I didn't, that were kind of dietary related, but mostly just like my own self sense of worth and, uh, and who I was and how I wanted to show up in the world. And then in 2011, I kind of took it seriously. My firstborn kid was about two and a half years old and I chased him up a flight of stairs, like in a playground area. And he was like at the top of the stairs, all like laughing and happy. And I was like, out of prep. I was like, well, I'm supposed to be healthier than this. I wasn't even 30 yet. And I thought, oh boy, this is trouble. And so that was when I made like my first real move to clean up my diet and kind of like take it seriously and like all the food prep. And I stopped winging it. Like I was comfortable in the kitchen. So like to wing it was okay. And, you know, but you know, like I'd come home and uh, after a stressful day at work, after a long meeting in the evening, and I'd pour myself like, you know, my favorite vegan granola with like tons of soy milk. And it was probably like a 700 calorie bomb at like 930 or 10 o'clock in the evening, right before going to bed. And I wondered why I wasn't losing weight, you know, like, you just don't even think about it. I never counted calories. I didn't, I didn't think about some of the choices I was making, even though things had clicked for me even several years before that. Um, So in 2011, I make this like, kind of dedicated move and I lose 50 pounds and I go from like hovering around 250 pounds and I'm like five foot 11 frame and hovering around 250 pounds down to 200. And I felt like a superhuman, like I had regained my life. And I thought, man, this is a comfortable place to be. And, and then I realized, you know, over the course of the next five years that I, there was other goals I wanted, like I wanted to be able to run a marathon and I wanted to be a little quicker on my skates. I play a lot of ice hockey. and And then I had this like, anyways, life happens kind of moment. And I was like, I need something to focus on. And so I focused on my health again, and lost the last 50 pounds. So over the course of an adult life, like I've lost nearly 100 pounds, thereabouts. And a lot of it was just through kind of taking a look in the mirror and asking other kinds of questions. And then the food side of it, the dietary side of it kind of came along for the self discovery ride. Okay, how's that for an answer?
0: I love that. Um, there's a lot of follow-up uh, questions I have.
1: Yeah.
0: First of all, there's a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability in what you just said, and I think that a lot of people can relate with that. Like whether you've gained five pounds or a hundred pounds or more, you know, people experience these emotions around food, and that food is so much more complicated than just something that you put in your mouth, as you said. Like it requires maybe even a deeper dive into who you are and how you view yourself. And it takes a lot of courage to take responsibility and to be brave enough to ask those questions. Do you mind sharing what some of those questions were in case somebody is kind of in this similar situation right
1: now? Wow, yeah, thanks, Sonia. That's a a good question. What were the questions I was asking? I asked questions like, how did I get here? You know, like I, there was a bit of that sort of probing back in my story, you know, some questions about, you know, why do I make the choices I make? And then what are the things that I know to be true about myself? You know, and it was just kind of reaffirming things that, you know, were a part of my life from childhood. Like I love food, like just coming to grips with that, coming to grips with the fact that I love flavors and just sort of owning that and being okay with that and, Not having the, like, like recognizing that food in and of itself wasn't the problem. It was how I was approaching food and for what reasons I was eating and how I kind of perceived of food's role in my life. So, I had to kind of, like, realize that I I was using it as an emotional crutch. Like, when I wanted to check out and escape, I escaped in the kitchen and I escaped through eating. And I had to ask myself, why is it that I go to food to escape and rather than stay present with my feelings? So if I was feeling down or if I had a moment of self-loathing, why was it that I raced to the kitchen to create, you know, some amazing sandwich with like whatever, you know, and it was huge and massive. And it's like, I may have eaten like two hours ago and had no need for those calories because I wasn't particularly training hard or like living you know, an athlete's lifestyle. Like I didn't need that many calories, but it made me feel good to create those flavors and to bite into it. And it was like all the dopamine receptors were just like, I know now what was happening. Like I needed a pick me up and my pick me up was food. So I asked a lot of questions about that. Like, why do I go to food? Why is it that I want to run away from these feelings? Why am I not comfortable with them? And then, you know, I, I finally took my own advice for years working in the nonprofit world and in the church world, I I told a lot of people to go get counseling. And I'd never actually started getting counseling for myself because I was too busy or I by and large had my life together. It it seemed at least, you know, from the outside perspective, not 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 everybody maybe knew what was kind of going on in my heart or, you know, what I was dealing with. But I started going to a counselor and just talking through some of this stuff and learning to be present to my feelings. And being okay with those and honoring them and realizing that, you know, if you just stay a little bit longer in that feeling, it generally crests and then it kind of tails off on the other side and, you know, finding other ways to regulate my nervous system rather than through eating. So those are some of the things that I kind of focused in on. A lot of it was just that internal work. Uh, And then it became easier to say, yeah, I'm going to choose the healthier option. Like I'm always going to have a huge salad for lunch. Why? Well, because one, it makes me feel good. And, you know, two, it it serves less of that kind of a a crutch role in my life of just creating something that's super decadent and really rich and, and, you know, feeding me too much more than I need to eat, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of um, really useful things for the listener, like number one, identifying your deeper sense of values and strengths and things that you like that make up who you are. And you said that, food. I love food and that's okay. And I don't need to be ashamed of the fact that I love food. Most of us like food. (laughs) And then I also Mm -hmm. heard you say that you would get uncomfortable and you wouldn't like that feeling of discomfort. So you would go do something. You go make a sandwich, maybe number one, searching for that dopamine hit or that hormonal, you know, neurochemical hit, but also number two, like to search for a sense of control whenever you feel out of control. And sometimes food, people can use food and this might not be you, but Sometimes people use food in that way. I'm in control, so I'm gonna go eat because I can control that action or they'll withhold food on the other side of the eating disorder spectrum. They're using food for control and that you actually really did a deep dive into this and figured out you know, what was important to you and what would motivate you to make these decisions because it's hard to reach for a salad when you want a giant bowl of granola or a burger.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you've done some deep thinking on this too, Sonia. That's evident, which is great. And it's good to have a conversation with somebody who's sort of on the same wavelength and always kind of digging deeper in terms of what does it mean to live your best life. And yeah, and that control piece is an interesting one because the truth is you're the only one that can control what you eat or should be the only one that controls what you eat, right? And it it shouldn't be, well, my spouse does this or my partner does this or my family does this and therefore I can't have the agency that I'm looking for. In my dietary choices, just to kind of really stay narrow here. Um, But that being said, it is tricky because the nuance there is what you raised in that a lot of our responses to our emotional upheaval or our emotional dysregulation is uh, a desire for control. And that desire for control can express itself in a variety of settings, in a variety of ways. For me, it happened to express itself through controlling what I eat. And I think. Probably for a lot of people, uh, that is the truth. And so, it's, it's reframing your perception of control and not sort of abnegating your agency in what you choose to eat, but also um, having a healthier relationship with the choices you make around food when you're aware of your emotional state and sort of that, that space of dysregulation. Um, and that can be tough to tease apart, mostly because we have to eat, whereas some of the other crutches uh, maybe that we use or things that we use to placate or the addictions that we have, whether television or drugs or uh, you name it, you know most of those things are things we can live without forever. You never have to touch the cell phone again. You never have to look at a monitor again. You know, you never have to do cocaine or smoke a drink or have a beer or anything ever again, and your life will be basically fine, but you have to eat. And that's the interesting one with overeating. And it's the one that is tied to so much else when it comes to human well-being and even our relationship to the land and the choices that we make around sustainability and, uh, You know, it it can go really deep. Like food is at the center of our economic system. It's at the center of our social systems. Like I'm going a little heady here, but I'll be honest. Like when you start going down this road of reflecting on your food choices and that you do have agency, I think that's actually a big part of what the plant-based movement is going to continue to lean into over the next decade, is to recognize that you know we've got a long ways to go as a movement in terms of Uh, figuring out all the ways in which our food choices are implicated in overall planetary well-being and human well-being and the relationships that we share with with everybody. So yeah, I would just nuance that. I would just nuance the control conversation and uh, particularly around food. It's an interesting one.
0: Yeah. And then also how processed foods are designed so that you're out of control. (laughs) <laughs> you can't Mercy, I, uh,
1: I was in, uh, I was, where was I, I was traveling and I think it, the book had been published years before, I think, but I had read it Fat salt and sugar. I think it's called by Michael something. Oh man. I'll, you can put it in the show notes as well, but I was on a trip and it was my audible book for the trip. And I was listening to it. it's a long, like deep dive into things like the bliss point I'm sure your listeners are probably semi-familiar or really familiar with this idea of like working in a laboratory and getting the perfect balance of fat, salt, and sugar in a bite so that your dopamine receptors peak at the highest possible level, but not so much that it kind of disgusts your palate. Like a little too much fat or a little too much salt or a little too much sugar will do that. But if you start like creeping all of them up, you can get to what's called a bliss point where you get the optimum firing of your brain and a lot of overly processed foods um, try to zero in on this bliss point. Um, And it's no wonder, and you know, how how the dopamine receptors and the neurotransmitters work in our brain is that early on when an experience is novel and new, we get the same high, but the whole reason that we kind of often fall off a cliff on uh, addictive behaviors is that, eventually our brain kind of gets accustomed and uh, is used to the stimulus that something provides. And then all of a sudden, um, you need more of whatever it is you're doing to get the same high, to get the same dopamine response. And so, that's what we found, uh, or that's what this book kind of has a huge expose on. That's not like the bliss point, you know, was um, a slippery slope to go down as food processors, um, even though we all want it kind of to taste good. So, part of part of my whole experience was sort of retraining my taste buds around how much salt do I need in my food and how much fat is enough to get like what I need for healthy living versus you know what just makes it all taste good and kind of gives you that satiated whatever evolutionary response to you know high loads of calories and all the rest of it so you're right you're totally right about that
0: yeah and i think it's so interesting how your palate shifts if you don't eat processed foods and you don't use a lot of salt, sugar or oil, certainly you can use a little bit. But if you you know, use yeah. less, I noticed that if I will like eat out or eat something that is a processed food, it tastes way too salty or way too sweet. And it doesn't hit that bliss point for me. It's just like gross.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I have the same experience.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that food choices are about so much more than eating and food is the center of so many different financial decisions. And I mean, food, the world revolves around food, whether you're looking at animal agriculture, or even just like how people relate to one another. Can you talk about like the time whenever you started shifting from, yeah, I'm eating for health to, wow, there's so much more involved here than just health and, you know, being at a healthy weight.
1: Yeah. The shift started about 10 years ago. I really started to think a lot about sort of Global poverty issues and access to food. And I was one of the early people that caught a glimpse. I I caught a glimpse before it became something I heard a lot in social media of the fact that, like, hey, how is it that we can feed, you know, like 40, 50, 60, 70 billion huge land animals in order to support the kind of consumption of meat and the growing consumption of meat, but we can't feed at the time, you know, 7 billion people and now close to 8 billion people, you know, like some it's a non-sequitur. It just doesn't follow. Like we've got enough corn and soy and, you know, grains to feed the livestock, but we don't have enough of that to feed people. Like how is anybody starving? Like that just didn't make sense to me. And then you follow the money and you realize that, you know, it was lucrative to feed the animals rather than feed the people. And that was like the first real, like, kind of dead ringer for me. And I was like, "Oh snap! I have a lot to think about in terms of my choices around food." Even though I hadn't been eating meat for eight or nine years, I knew, I knew that there was more to the story. And so, you know, it was sort of tied to my growing awareness of social justice issues in the world and inequities. And again, uh, working in kind of uh, a Professional setting that gave me the time and energy to to dedicate to that. It sort of came alongside of, of some of my other natural, just the the world that I was living in, uh, predisposed me to thinking about these bigger issues of how our society and world operates on a relational level, and thinking about the the you know the inequities. Um, and then I realized you know, like things like food deserts. Why is it? Why is it that certain parts of North America you know it's more expensive to eat healthy to eat the things like the the raw products that go into all of the processed foods potentially than it is to eat the actual food that has gone through the whole process of being created and packaged and shipped and put on a store shelf like how is it that those are cheaper than buying the produce than buying you know the grains that go into making those products like why is flour More expensive than the donut. Like it just, I was like, what? And why is it that you can get the donut and not the whole grain? Like that didn't make sense to me. And so, you know, you go down this rabbit hole and you realize that, that, you know, the system is is really incentivized towards earning profits. And so I, I think that there's this whole movement of more conscious capitalism, if that's even possible. And people thinking a little bit more through things that are human rights. And I think food, water, and land and air are human rights. We need those things to survive. And so any economic or cultural decision that impacts how all of us experience those things, you know, should be out in the public domain and talked about. Like, we should know. There should be total transparency in the food system. Like, there's just no reason why we shouldn't know what is exactly in our food, how it's being grown, and what is being used to grow it.
0: And the government Um, subsidies that are funding a lot of these. like It's crazy if you start following that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it it just, it it kept going, you know, it was down to like soil health and what leads to, like, how do you know you've got healthy soil? Like I I didn't even think about these things. And then you start going down you start thinking about them and you realize that, you know, you just took it all for granted. Like I was part of the modern experience of, you know, just walking into a grocery store and taking for granted that I'll find things that I want to eat and having the money to spend on the things that I want to eat, you know? And yeah, there's just a lot more to it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, most of us listening are in that boat where we can have access to anything super easy and really quickly and for pretty cheap. But I love that all the different elements that you brought up about food because there's a lot of things that people haven't thought about before maybe. And also, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about climate change and what can we do? And, you know, carbon dioxide being the number one contributor and then methane being number two. And I read this article, it was like, you know, methane's number two. It's about the, like, and this wasn't a plant-based media outlet. This was the newsletter Morning Brew, which is just like, they take a bunch of different news and put it in an email newsletter for you and morning brew was talking about the methane from the, the burping and the, you know, the tooting of the cows and something that wasn't even mentioned in there. It's like, let's just eat less cows. It was like, Oh, they're trying to figure out, you know, maybe they can feed the cows different things so that they don't produce this methane. But there's still not this conversation around changing our eating habits because that is such a huge thing that people can do. And it's a massive thing. A lot of us feel helpless whenever we see these really large-scale problems. Like, oh, it's up to the government to fix it, or what can I do? Or this is a, a a world problem. But every single choice that we all make with our dollar and what we put in our mouths actually makes a huge difference.
1: Of course it does, and uh, that's a, a big reason why we're so thrilled at the Planton Expo to um, feature companies that are thinking about how they're going to bring their product to market. In a way that honors the whole system from seed to plate, honors the producers, honors the farmers, and ultimately honors the consumers and their business practices. By that, I mean the producers' business practices. You know, so many people in the realm of the plant-based movement, even those that you know, we some people might think that we don't eat any produced foods. We do. Like I like them. I, I love the fact that there's a lot of great vegan companies producing amazing good vegan food out there and options and making it convenient. But I think by and large, um, they're doing it in a way that sort of asks the questions at every step of the way. Where am I sourcing my food? How is it coming together? You know, And what impact are my choices as a food producer having on the wider world? And I love that. I love that really conscious engagement in the economy. And in the food system. And it's really exciting to host something like the Planted Expo because it really features the very best of uh, sort of human innovation and the fact that we are the solution to our own problem. Like we can do this, we can find a way to feed ourselves in a better, more sustainable way. There's nothing stopping us. And these companies are proving it. And it's so exciting to be a part of it and just to watch them flourish and to watch them grow into really great you know, both local and national, and some of them even international companies.
0: Yeah. I like how you brought back in the agency piece, the thing that really helped you in your life. And now, you know, through all the work that you're doing, trying to give people that sense of agency too. We are the solution to our own problems. The Planted Expo, I'm really excited for it and I'm really honored to be a speaker at it. It's really about connection and you're an incredible connector as a, as a person. You know you have your master's in leadership you have your background as a pastor where there's a lot of human connection there i'm kind of changing gears a little bit and then i want to get back to the planted expo but can you talk about human connection because i feel like right now it's been really hard for people because we've been in a digital world for so long but that we need that connection so what's been your experience with that
1: yeah you've opened up like one of my deepest points of reflection, and it's always interesting. Like, how do I jump in? What's my on-ramp here? And you, you know, you teed it up nicely there. Um, you know, there is no replacement for the human experience and physical presence. We know just how being close to um, an infant who does not have the communication skills. Uh, that we do as adults, um, and certainly hasn't totally kind of clued into uh, some of the more cerebral components of connection. But that presence, that just the the sense, the smell, the pheromones, the sound of your uh, caretaker's voice, or the sound of a beloved person's voice, or um, just their smile, the facial expressions, so much of communications, you know that, right? Like, 80% of communication is nonverbal. And so, you know, screens, Zoom helps. Like, this is a much easier conversation than it would be if it was just via telephone. But uh, we as humans need to do what humans do best, and we are social creatures. And I, I, I think I'm not a Luddite. I'm not against social media. I'm not against the internet, and I'm not against the digital part of our connection, but not at the expense of the analog experience not at the expense of what uh, makes us profoundly human. And, and that is like a live concert. You can listen to your favorite band, with the most expensive hi-fi audio system, and feel like if you close your eyes, you were right in front of that band. But if you open your eyes and you're just staring at a speaker, you know that you're missing out on something. But you're there and you watch that Person dance and sweat and be close enough, even though they may be, you know, whatever, hundreds of yards away from you, you know that you're in the presence of other people that care about what's happening there. And that's why we still go to live music, not because a lot of times the venues sound as good, like the record on Spotify sounds better frequently, but that real, like, hey, they're making music, they're performing, there's something human that happens there. That is something that we need to curate and cultivate. And spend time as a society thinking about how we're going to prioritize those moments of human connection and not not swing the pendulum so far where it's like, oh, I'm done with my cell phones and I'm done with, with FaceTime and I'm done with connecting with people that way and saying, yeah, it's a both end. Like it's the both end of the world that we live in. And I think this pendulum has swung very far in the digital direction. And I think we'll we'll slowly navigate our way back to. Those profound moments of human connection. Um, even if coming out of COVID, we're all a little skittish about it. Like, like, is this safe? Um, and that's that's a that's a challenge that we're all facing right now. But in the grand scheme of things, like this pandemic is uh, ultimately a short amount of time uh, for many of us. And in terms of, of how long we get to live, and certainly how long the human race will continue to exist beyond our our time here. Um, What we need to know, what we need to know is that we can safely and meaningfully continue to converse and be present to one another, sort of in real time, in flesh, you know, and be close enough to one another that we can sense that camaraderie and that kinship that comes from the fact that we have so much in common as humans. And much more that binds us together than what separates us. And so, yeah, I, I am. I'm. I'm really keenly interested in how to curate those kinds of experiences because we've all been in the awkward experience too, right? Like being close to people can be awkward too, and that's okay. But you know, how do we how do we set the stage for real deep connection to happen?
0: Yeah, I like that you brought up that it's non-binary and it's both and. And coming back to we talked about nuance earlier, it's about the nuance and that's how it is with most big topics and that feeling the energy of another human being is something that you can't replace with a screen and you just can't do that so you know in terms of the events that you're planning you have planted expo and you also have you know a really great thing called planted learn where people can take these online courses like how are you professionally balancing analog and digital in this in this realm
1: yeah so the the planted Team recognized early on when we bought and took over what used to be called the Veg Expo that people loved the expo environment, which is kind of consumer facing. It's not meant to be a curated list of insiders and buyers. And it's not a business to business event, although we are looking at ways to incorporate the business to business component. But that there was this celebratory experience, an immersive environment, if you will over the course of a weekend where people came and were around other people that were keenly interested in the same things. And there's a buzz and a high that comes from that kind of a moment. But uh, in previous iterations of the event, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of time and energy spent capturing um, the best of what was offered there, particularly from the stage, you know? There was always amazing voices and speakers and presentations But they weren't captured so that the the event could kind of live beyond the confines of that specific amount of time. And so, for those that either couldn't make it to the event or were just like, man, I really wish I could hear so-and-so's talk again from the Veg Expo," um, we realized that uh, we have a keen opportunity because of the kinds of voices like yourself and others that we are going to be inviting and partnering with and featuring on the stage that these things need to live sort of beyond the event. And so that's why capturing it digitally and making it available online was important. But in addition to that, as we develop relationships with these people, we know that often a 20-minute presentation or even a 45-minute interview on stage is an insufficient amount of time to really capture everything that this person may be able to bring to the table. So moving forward, and this is a kind of a growing leading edge for us, we want to we find a way to curate um, a library of resources that can be trusted. By the average plant curious Canadian and beyond that says, Hey, you know, I don't really know what this plant journey is going to amount to for me, but I have some questions, I'm curious, I could use some resources. And we just sort of knew that we were going to be encountering some of the best voices. And how do we take what they're doing and put it in front of more people and the kind of people that could really benefit from it? So that was the planted learn side of it. That was the digital. Component to what we already did, which was, you know, an immersive analog weekend where you're tasting and trying and listening and hearing and rubbing shoulders with maybe a little less this year with COVID. You know, we'll all be practicing a little bit more kind of polite protocol. But uh, uh, you know, how do we how do we bring again and bridge the best of both worlds? And so that's what the planted learn wing of what we're doing is going to be all about. And, uh, yeah, we're still sort of stretching into that and kind of feeling our way through it. Cause it's, yeah, it's just like, it's something we know we need to do and we need to do it well. So, um, we're excited about where that's headed.
0: Yeah, I think a, a big challenge about going to see a speaker is that a speaker can inspire somebody for when they're in the room. Um, but it's up to the person to go make those changes in their lives when they leave. And sometimes that requires counseling or coaching, But sometimes it just requires community because nobody does anything big in their lives alone. So it's finding ways to surround yourself with people who can help you along your journey so that you don't feel so alone when you're making those changes where maybe you learn something in an online course or from a speaker where these things can be implemented moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, so while the weekend is sort of like the signature, big, immersive, like thousands of people involved kind of an event, One of the things that we're also exploring is how do we take uh, elements and segments of what transpires over um, sort of a planted expo weekend and make micro events. Um, We're also in talks with various people about sort of signature, more immersive week-long moments where people can go and catch the bug, if you will. (laughs) Because one of the one of the mottos I live by is that the plant-based movement is more caught than taught. You know, we all know that we should eat more veggies. We all know we should eat more fruit. We all know that whole grains are healthy, as an example. And we all know that we want to uh, reduce harm and we want to reduce pollution and we want to reduce our footprint on the world. We kind of intellectually, uh, many of us, have already kind of crossed that chasm. But what we don't always have is uh, sort of the... Uh, this sense that we can do it. And oftentimes, the sense that we can do it comes from being around others who are doing it. And so, taking sort of a page out of our own book and saying, well, how do we create even more of that? Those moments where people can be like, oh, wow, look, I'm around and doing this and breathing and yoga and eating and chefing it out and talking about it and going deeper. And yeah, I can live this life. Like, this is doable. Like, look at all these people that are doing it. And And also recognizing that it's not about perfection. Like, I do a deep dive all the time and sort of think to myself, like, how do I do this? Like, how do I do this better? Because I know, I know that there's an ideal, like in my head, there's an ideal about a certain element of my lifestyle that could be better. And I'm not quite there yet. So rather than beating myself up, you know, saying, well, what do I do? Who do I need to surround myself with to do that? Um, So that's one of the things that we're looking at, just kind of continuing to grow. Um, what we do and, and making it more accessible in the ways that people want to. So whatever access point you are from just like average sort of curious person that's just kind of like dabbling to like the person that's already several years or like me almost two decades into it, like, well, what's my next evolution? Like, how do I go a little deeper and iterate a little bit more and take those next few little steps wherever they might be to living a better life?
0: Yeah. And something else I think is really interesting is, you know, when you're creating content, whether it's to be taught in person or, you know, coached or digitally, there's a lot of different learning styles out there and there's a lot of different personality types out there. So some people might be drawn to data and, you know, health research. Others might be drawn to just seeing somebody that they can see themselves in doing it. And then that helps them make change. So behavior change is just such an interesting topic. And it's a very deep topic Because not every single person is the same, and figuring out what motivates you and what you need in order to support, get that support that you need to make whatever change you're trying to make in life. Um, And then also giving yourself the grace, like you said, when you're searching for better, finding ways to not beat yourself up along the way and accepting that your best today might be different than your best tomorrow. Or maybe you don't need to place a label on yourself because a lot of people aren't comfortable putting a label of plant based or insert whatever other label of whatever you're trying to do is.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. And maybe a follow up conversation for you and me, around identity. And, um, you know, uh, because I I do think the plant based movement has been wrapped up a lot in like sort of changing one's identity. But I think we're, we're recognizing, you know, whether it was the film, The Game Changers, as an example of, I think, a story that was being able to to be told around, like, I don't know if you remember the opening scenes of that film, but it's James Wilkes and, you know, scenes of him as an MMA fighter, it's scenes of him training other kind of combat soldiers around self-defense. And it's not what you would traditionally think of when somebody that's sort of like motivated by the plant-based movement. Like we frequently think of, you know, for stereotypical purposes, like, you know, tree hugging hippie. You know, uh, we call that a granola lifestyle, right? Like we've referenced granola a few times. And that, I think that film very, very specifically goes out of its way because they know that identity is a big part of it to frame the conversation outside of like having to completely shift everything that you are in terms of like the things that you like and then show like, hey, even MMA fighters, like people that may be more violent than the average person in the plant-based movement is like sort of maybe comfortable with. And then asking that question, well, what makes you so uncomfortable about that? And can you accept that decision? And is there a place for that? And how does that look and how does that work? And like I mean it's fruitful conversation. But I, I I think a part of that is that whole like don't put a label on me. Like I can be, you know, a warrior. Like it started with that whole warrior thing. Like you can be a warrior. You can see yourself as a warrior and be plant-based. In fact, some of the greatest warriors of all time were plant-based, right? Like that was the whole historical piece around, uh, you know, the gladiators in Rome being plant-based.
0: Yeah. I mean, we could go on forever about this. I mean, just thinking about what society has traditionally shown of what it looks like to be, quote, a strong man or, you know, what it means to be masculine. And this, this was covered in lots of different, lots of different documentaries, including Forks Over Knives, when, someone was talking about erectile dysfunction and the flag not flying and (laughs) all those things oh and i think was that that was in the game changers too where they were actually uh yeah you guys should just watch watch that those listening that way i don't have to embarrass myself going (laughs) into too much detail (laughs) yeah there's societal i mean things are shifting too with like gender and um what that means to identify in a certain way and there's just a lot of really interesting conversations out there around identity and what it means to be something or not something or in the gray area in between. So lots of interesting thoughts for for everybody listening and for myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, ditto. Yeah, still kind of discovering all of that and uh, love thinking about it.
0: So where can people find you? Where can people find the Planted Expo?
1: Yeah, uh, plantedlife.com and uh, there you'll find access to both our Vancouver as well as our upcoming first ever show in Toronto at the end of March, which we're thrilled about. Um, And then on the socials, it's all sort of the same thing. Just search for Planted Life Expo or Planted Life, and you'll find us on those platforms as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We talked about so many different things and we crammed a lot into this hour and there's even more hours we could have gone into. So I really appreciate you showing up and sharing all of this knowledge and also some life experiences that you've had that will help others along their journey too.
1: Sonia, this is great. Long-form conversations are helpful in a bite-sized world. You know, having uh, some time to kind of expound a little bit and go a little deeper, you know, certainly allows us to tease out some of that nuance that we've referenced a few times. And so I I appreciate what you're doing. Way to go in all your success. Uh, and continuing to move both your life and this movement forward through these conversations. It's been my honor and pleasure to be a guest on your show. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thanks. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If you want to come check out the Planted Expo, go to plantedlife.com, pick up some tickets. It's a two-day long expo with amazing speakers both days. And also check out the VIP event with Rich Roll. I'm excited. I hope that I get to actually meet him at this event because he's somebody that has inspired my journey as well. Big shout out and thanks to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon and PayPal for your donations. That does not go unnoticed every single month and it goes to paying my podcast producer, Roma. So grateful that you are here. Please hit that subscribe button if you are enjoying the show and want more. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.